The Nonprofit Happy Hour. A weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders with interviews, music, and documentaries. You're listening to the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. Learn more online at mediamakingchange.org or in person at Citizen, our nonprofit coffee shop and program space, located at 3636A North Mississippi Ave. We're open most days, 9 to 1. I'm Rachel Miller Howard. On today's show, we have an interview with Kevin Gorman, who is the executive director of Friends of the Columbia Gorge. The conversation was recorded back in October when the Eagle Creek fire was still burning. After Kevin's interview is a short documentary by Carly Meisberger. Woody Guthrie, this is kind of a fascinating thing because it's hard to imagine the federal government doing this. Woody Guthrie was contracted by Bonneville Power Administration to write songs about the Columbia Gorge and the dams coming in and the electrification of the Northwest. And so he took his family in a station wagon and they hung out in an apartment in Portland and he just scratched together 20 or so songs. And Roland Columbia really was sort of that signature piece. And it's just a wonderful tribute to the area and the land as well as the people. Green Douglas fir where the waters cut through. Down her wild mountains and canyons she flew. Canadian Northwest to the ocean so blue. Let's roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Other great rivers add power to you. Yaki Maw Snake and the Clicky Tattoo Sandy Willamette and Hood River too Roll on Columbia, roll on It's there on your banks that we fought many a fight Sheridan's boys and the blockhouse that night They saw us in death but never in flight Roll on Columbia, roll on our loved ones we lost there at Cole's little store By fireball and rifle a dozen or more We won by the Mary and soldier she bore Roll on, Columbia, roll on Remember the trial when the battle was won The wild Indian warriors to the tall timber run We hung every Indian with smoke in his gun Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Year after year we had tedious trials, fighting the rapids at Cascades and Downs. The engines rest peaceful on Mamalusa. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. At Bonneville now there is ships in the locks. Waters have arisen and drowned the rocks. Shiploads of plenty will steam in the docks. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. On up the river at Grand. 
great factors for old Uncle Sam. It's roll on Columbia, roll on. And the Columbia Gorge is, is an area that just does deserve a soundtrack, yeah. a very epic soundtrack. We are talking with Kevin Gorman, who is executive director for Friends of the Columbia Gorge. Uh, this is the nonprofit hour on X-Ray FM. Kevin, thank you for coming into the studio today. Oh, thank you, Phil, for having me. Absolutely. So I, I want to start with the the mission to preserve for generations to come and Boy, I mean, we we are talking this morning, this is pre-recorded, but we are talking as the fires are still burning in the gorge, how much more gravity does that mission feel like it has now? A lot. You know, in the last several days, watching what has happened, you know, this has been a roller coaster ride, and I'm really not a fan of roller coasters, to watch the fire and watch night videos and photographs that really seemed apocalyptic. And we seem now that uh, as the smoke is clearing and the firefighters have done the work, that the landscape is charred, but it's not destroyed. It, it is a resilient place, and I'm really hopeful that we are going to continue to have a gorge that all of us enjoy, go out, and appreciate. But it is a fact of nature that uh, fires happen, and I think with climate change, we're seeing more of these. And so, so yeah, it's really, it's really hit home this week, and not just, not just what's gone on in the gorge, but the response from people. I have heard from so many people who are have just been viscerally hit by this. People look at the gorge as their church, you know, their sanctuary. And in many people, it's their home. And so they've been terrified about this. And and I think all of them, it's sort of a renewal to say, we might have been taking this place for granted, and now we need to step up and make sure that it's protected. People have really talked about in terms of almost a mourning of something lost. But as you said, the gorge isn't lost. It's not like a giant glacier came through and flattened it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, this area has dealt with Ice Age floods. It dealt with the uh, Bonneville landslide. We've had fires. The Yakult burn 100 years ago, ironically, started at Eagle Creek, jumped the river, and destroyed hundreds of thousands of acres. But it is a resilient place, and it it recovers, and it will take a long time to recover. It's going to be sad and challenging in the years to come, but it it will turn it will turn itself around, and and we need to be there to make sure that the steps moving forward are the right steps. Let's talk about Friends of the Columbia Gorge uh, specifically as an organization. You guys have a huge team. Mm-hmm. Uh, during your time there. It's grown to 17 staff members? Yeah, it's actually about 20 staff. Okay. Now. It's pretty amazing. When I started, I just celebrated my 19th anniversary as director of the organization. When I started, we the organization had net assets of about 750000 and now it's about $20 million. And so that has allowed us to purchase land. It's allowed us to really hire the best legal help we can find to to fight issues like oil trains and coal trains. It's allowed us to create youth programs, uh, help build new trails. It's 
it, it's a testament to how much people care about the gorge because the the funds that we've been able to raise you know they come from individuals it doesn't come from government very little comes from foundations it comes from individuals yeah let's let's talk a little bit more about that how how have you grown the organization both in terms of staff and in terms of money this certainly not something that just passively happened no and you know it was it was really smart and i've watched a number of groups that start their nonprofits and it's a bunch of staff trying to make things come together and they often decide, well, who are the foundations that we can get money from? Well, our founder started things different. This is a woman, uh, Nancy Russell, who was, she was a homemaker. She had no political experience. She had never uh, been involved with nonprofits. But what she did, which was really smart, is she went to her friends. She went to her circle of friends and she started raising money, started raising support through individuals. And we have always kept that mantra that foundations are wonderful, they provide great services, but if we can go to the people, once somebody becomes a member of our organization, the the passion for the mission is so large that we don't have to worry about these swinging trends that you see with foundations and such. So, so we've always taken that grassroots approach, and we've been able to grow our membership. It's now I think over 6,500 people in Oregon, Washington, and beyond. You know, some give $10, $15 a year. Some give several thousand dollars a year. It's really all sorts. And we we really want, you know, we want all sorts of people in the mix here because you look at the gorge, you go out on a weekend, and it is truly a melting pot. You know, it is amazing the the difference in ages, ethnic diversity. It's And we need to keep working to make sure... Our membership represents that. Can you talk about how did that decision come about to start to turn Friends of the Columbia Gorge beyond just a conservation group, but into a, into a land trust? And, and first explain what a land trust is, and then yeah. when did the decision come about? A land trust is different than a conservation group like the Sierra Club or Greenpeace, which are truly advocates, and they work on policy, and they may file litigation on things. Land trust work with private landowners to purchase land and hold it, often in perpetuity. Um, sometimes land trust hold land to protect uh, habitat. Sometimes land trust hold land to preserve farmlands. Sometimes land trust hold land for trail systems. And so it's, you know, the Nature Conservancy is the best example of uh, a land trust that most people know. And so often the land trust world and that conservation advocacy world, they they live in different worlds. You know, one is a little more confrontational. One is a little more community oriented. So they communicate, but they don't play in the same sandbox usually. So the whole issue for us was we are protecting the gorge and our focus is we will take whatever tool we can to protect the Columbia Gorge. We're not about water quality. We're not about salmon. We're not about, you know, using this tactic. We're about protecting a place. And so when I started, our founder, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Nancy Russell, had helped get Trust for Public Land, which is a land trust, into the gorge to work to buy land that eventually would be purchased by federal agencies. And that was enormously successful. I'll give you a quick example. We lead 100 hikes a year in the gorge. Half of them are on lands that were not available 30-some years ago. 
they now are because of the work of Trust for Public Land. And at the same time, our founder, Nancy, became a conservation buyer. She started going out and buying land to protect it on her own, buying the land, paying the taxes. In some cases, she sold the land to the agencies and would buy new land. So, so she was working as her own land trust, which is pretty phenomenal. At that time, we were advocating for land acquisition dollars. We were supporting her. We were kind of living in that world, but it wasn't part of our world. And so I had a conversation with Nancy, and we started talking about the land she held and what she was going to do with it once she passed on. And and her greatest wish was that it would stay with Friends of the Columbia Gorge. Well, we weren't set up for that. So but we had talked about her leaving it in her will and to us. And if we didn't have a land trust, she'd leave money to help help start one. Eighteen months later, we started Friends of the Columbia Gorge Land Trust, which is a support organization of our parent, the the 501c3 nonprofit. And so I had to go around the country and find were there other organizations that were involved in advocacy, actually were involved in litigation, but also did land trust work. And there are only a handful. We're one of the few in the entire country, maybe four or five, that actually sort of live in all those worlds. How do your campaigns differ from something like Protections of the Coast, which is already the land is already set aside by state protections? You guys have to deal with local, state, federal. I mean, you're, you're encompassing two states. You're dealing with private ownership. You have some in land trust. It seems like there's a lot more moving parts in that that you're starting a little bit behind the uh, the line of scrimmage, as it were. Well, I guess I would I would frame it a little differently. So let me let me give you some context. I think that's exactly where we were in 1980 when our organization was formed. Was um, the gorge was being eyed by a lot of developers. The I-205 bridge was coming in. So these little towns of Camas and Washougal and Troutdale, everyone saw that once that bridge comes in, you're going to have this suburban sprawl that starts creeping out there and moving beyond. And there was already proposals for subdivisions across from uh, Multnomah Falls and Beacon Rock area and such. So our organization was started because the interest was how do we create some kind of federal legislation that protects both sides of the river? Oregon had its land use laws. Washington really had nothing. You know, one of the gentlemen, we just had the exhibit at the Art Museum about John Yon, who was one of the early leaders pushing our organization forward, talked about how you needed this federal legislation that was uniform. On both sides. So so that's the reason we were started, was to push for federal legislation. And it took six years. But finally, Ronald Reagan, in one of the very, very few conservation pieces of legislation that crossed his desk, signed that bill. So we do have this overlay. And we do have the Gorge Commission, which was created to oversee it. Within that is two states, six counties, 13 urban areas, four treaty tribes, an assortment of things, but everybody is falling within that national scenic area management plan. So there is some uniformity to there. You just have an amazing cast of characters 
an array of issues. And so it just is a, it's a challenge. Kevin Gorman is the executive director for Friends of the Columbia Gorge. Let's take another song break. Do you have another suggestion? With the uh, fires in mind, I I had a lot of people that talked about, you know, the gorge is lost as we know it. And I think the, as to paraphrase Mark Twain, it's like, you know, reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. And this is still a beautiful place. And so one of, one of my favorite songs is a, a song called Thing of Beauty by Hot House Flowers. Every time I hear that song and those lyrics, I think about the Columbia Gorge.
the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are talking to Kevin Gorman, Executive Director for Friends of the Columbia Gorge, an organization that certainly is on, on Portlanders' minds uh, with the future of the Gorge. Let's talk a little bit about your, your board of directors. Can you give me just three adjectives to describe them? Engaged, passionate, and they just are present. They're there. They're they're really a wonderful group of people. For those who run nonprofits, I think sometimes the board role, board members are not sure what their role is. Sometimes staff feel like boards get in their way. I've had some directors tell me, oh, I could do my job so much better without a board. I've never felt that way. I mean, we have an amazing group of board members and they have our back. It's such a critical part of our success. Last year, I believe that was just last year, uh, coal trains became a big deal. Um, talk a little bit about that campaign. What was the role of uh, Friends of the Columbia Gorge? How successful do you feel like it, it was? All of this started in 2011. Coal terminals and oil terminal proposals began popping up throughout the Northwest. And the whole idea was you have the Bakken oil fields with all of this oil that they want to move and and then coal fields. And everybody was trying to figure out how do we get this stuff to China. All of these proposals were in place to just dramatically increase the amount of coal uh, trains going through the gorge and oil trains going through the gorge. And China is, you know, doing uh, more renewable energy work than any country on the planet. So they knew they had this short window of time to get this stuff going. And so we have known that too. And so we have worked to make sure that that these terminals didn't get built because once they were built, um, we would have these trains going through for for decades. One of the things that's been so helpful is the tribes across the Northwest and the West who have made it as big of a priority as we have. They've done so much in the way of stopping this. How do you recommend that people deal with uh, their concern, heartbreak, anxiety over the future of the Columbia Gorge? I think one of the most important things is to be engaged and to be part of that larger voice. So by becoming a member of the organization and participating you can take a role. We are a society that craves instant gratification, and everyone wants to pick up a shovel. Everybody wants to plant a, a, a tree, but we need to we need to let the smoke literally, figuratively clear, and then we need to kind of assess the ground and what's out there and what are the best ways to move forward. And it's going to take time, and there are going to be decisions made in the next year or two that are going to affect generations to come. We have a shot to, to do something different here, and um, we, need to, we need to take advantage of it. Kevin Gorman is the executive director for Friends of the Columbia Gorge. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us, and good luck on the upcoming months and years. Thank you. And now a short documentary by Carly Meisberger. The Columbia River Gorge, Portland's magnificent playground. It draws us with its untamed spaces, its water features, and its expansive hiking trails. The Gorge is a special place, and the local nonprofit Friends of the Columbia Gorge is its key ally in matters of conservation and growth. 
I hiked the gorge with Kevin Gorman, the executive director of Friends, and got a sense of the complexity of the organization's role in the gorge. Do you think it's pretty important to get people from the city out into the gorge on these on these hikes? Yeah, I I do think it's important for folks in Portland and Vancouver to appreciate what's out here. At the same time, I mean, I think we've got to be really careful not to just promote this as Portland's playground. It's trying to find that balance because we serve both worlds. We really try to serve, you know, the people who really enjoy this but don't live here and then the people who live here and enjoy it, you know. Friends' recent project is the Preserve the Wonder campaign, a push to raise enough money to purchase seven new properties in the gorge. Buying this land will not only expand the boundary of the gorge, but will also allow for existing trails to be connected, an initiative known as Towns to Trails. Kevin explained that the goal of Towns to Trails is to address a frustration among gorge businesses. Most hikers only spend a day in the gorge and never enter the communities, thereby robbing them of an economic boost. So think about the community. You create a trail system that is like a European trekking model, you know, where people can carry a day pack and they go from a hotel in a community to a B&B that's out in this area and, and you can do sort of a town-to-town thing. Well, that for the communities creates an economic benefit that day hikers never bring. Like most Portlanders, I had not thought about my relationship with the Gorge as having an effect on the communities that call it home. I found a similar sentiment when I spoke with a local backpacker and University of Portland student, Elizabeth Prosser. That would be really interesting. I guess I'm not used to thinking of this area as that kind of community, I guess. I always kind of assume that sometimes we're annoying people out there just because I feel like a lot of the people I do talk to who want to live out in the gorge are like, oh, I just want to get away from the people in the city. So it would be interesting to see if they... I don't know how to find the right balance between the number of people they want to attract and then maybe when they want to stop bringing in so many people. I was also interested in how Gorge residents felt about the Towns to Trails initiative. So I decided to discuss this idea with a local Gorge business owner. I'm going to just grab a key. We can go in the front office. Um, I used to own a sail loft. We came down as sailmakers. And um, so my retail was down here and the sale loft was upstairs. That's Susan Dow. She moved to Hood River in 83 and sold handcrafted windsurfing sales for 25 years. Now she owns a sandbar cafe, a food cart located at the main beach in Hood River. Overall, would you say that an additional influx of maybe like hikers and tourists it would be, would be awesome good? because the fall and the spring... And, I mean, like, I'm a hiker year-round. I love hiking in the snow. I think what you're proposing is is one of the next steps, you know, something that um, just seems really natural to do. Because that's the people we cater to here, is the active people. Even, like, the older active people would love it the most, you know, and those are great people to have in this area. The gorge may be our playground, but for the communities that live among its grandeur, it's so much more. It's home. Every morning I hike my dog, you know, someplace, 
and I, the chills never leave, you know, I mean, I've been here 34 years, and it just, you don't get used to it, it's a very special place, and it is. It gives me tears when I talk about it, I love it. This is Carly Meisberger reporting for X-Ray FM. Music by Leah Thomas. Special thanks to our sponsors. BusinessWorks, specializing in small business accounting needs of all sort, from payroll to day-to-day bookkeeping and beyond. Winderly of Vineyard and Winery, crafting elegant, sensuous, and age-worthy wines for those who view the pairing of wine and food essential to their lifestyle and well-being. Stormbreaker Brewing, a welcoming and comfortable destination for enjoying delicious beers, tasty food, and friendly company. And Porque No Taqueria, celebrating the flavor and essence of Mexico. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Our host is Phil Bussey. Our producer and editor is Rachel Miller-Howard. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to info at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in.